one. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hi, I'm Jen, and this is Lynn. Hi. And together, we're the co-hosts of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen. So, Lynn, we're kind of an odd pairing. You know, I'm growing my career, and you've had a thriving one for at least as long as I've been alive. Why don't you start us off with how this podcast came to be and how we even started working together? Well, uh, I can start with when I first met you, sure. uh, Jen, and you had uh, contacted me, and you were very interested in working in the field of uh, psychology and psychiatry. And we had lunch together at a favorite little restaurant and yeah. began uh, talking really about our, our common interest. And um, uh, for 30, 35 plus years now, I've worked in the field of uh, child and adolescent psychiatry, psychology, and uh, I'm committed to working with families and uh, very interested in the topic of adolescent sexuality. So with that in mind, we had our lunch, and I was struck by the fact that you were so knowledgeable and so interested in families. You know, um, young people, I think, often don't have uh, the perceptions that you had about how families connect. And uh, some of it, I think, knowing you years later, knowing you better, I think comes partly from your cultural background that you had grown up in an extended Asian culture across Asia. Yeah. And you had grandparents that I've now met. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you had uh, really respect and ideas about how families connect. And um, knowing you has really helped me understand kind of extended families across the Asian tradition differently. Though I, I have to say in work, I work with a lot of these families. But I was impressed with your knowledge of your own family, really your thoughts about it, how much you wanted to work to help other families, and how how much knowledge you really had as a young person in this area. So I think even meeting you, and then you went off to school, you studied it, you came back, and we really began a different relationship, you know, as colleagues, and then working together to really develop, you know, the book sex lives again, and then to work on this podcast. But it was really, I think, your energy around an interest in families and all of these topics, how they fit together, that impressed me. Oh, that's so sweet. I really yeah. appreciate that. I think for me, with you, what really struck me was you lent me your book. I believe at the time it was The Romance of Risk. Mm -hmm. And I read the entire book like right away <laughs> And it struck me, one, how much you get inside the heads of other people, of teens. And what I loved was the framework, that risk wasn't just this dangerous thing that you have to be terrified of and everybody has to protect teens. It was this idea that it was really one of the modes in which we learn to take healthy risk as well. And that was something I had never seen before. And it resonated so deeply with me. And so I was so thrilled to be able to be able to connect with you and hear your thoughts and opinions about it and how you came to form that type of idea. You know, we're talking about families, and uh, I, too, have a family, not extended uh, 
Asian, but extended. And, uh, I, you know, have French, uh, uh, Canadian background culture and, and part Native American. And I think in my ideas about risk taking, my father, who was from that uh, background and culture played a huge role. And, uh, he saw, um, taking healthy risk as what had made him most successful in life. Oh. And, uh, that he had been able to try new things that he was not familiar with, you know, push himself a little bit to do these things. And, uh, in many aspects of life, he became a very, very successful person. And I admired the way he took on risk and challenge. And then I ended up being a psychiatrist in San Francisco, working with lots of teenagers. And I saw how risk was always seen in a dangerous and negative way for teens. So it, it was those two perceptions that really, I think, helped me think, how can I change that? How can I help young people? You know, and parents understand that risk taking is a developmental tool. It's a process that we need really to engage in, and it helps us to become really complex people. And particularly in sexuality, we've got to take, you know, sexual risks to really grow in this area that you and I are both so interested in. Yeah, absolutely. And what that brings up for me about your father is actually the role that my mother played. So I actually came from a very closed sexual environment in terms of we never talked about sex or sexuality or anything like that. But one thing that she did instill in me was taking risk. Mm -hmm. She encouraged me to do things that I was scared to do, that I was unfamiliar with. And I think that more than anything is one of the foundations that encourages me to try new things. And that has made such a difference in my life. And I think one of the reasons why I was so thrilled to do a podcast like this, among many, mm -hmm. but one of the main reasons was that I didn't have this type of conversation. I didn't have mm -hmm. these relationships to help me navigate. And mm -hmm. I think I went through some very challenging things on my mm -hmm. own, but also by relying on friends and mm -hmm. relying on other adults. But I think it speaks a lot to how much adults can impact in a positive way that course. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about our parents and parents, I think, play a huge role in our sexual lives. Um, Freud knew that. He was aware of that. And, and I think he was right, though it's not always the way he thought. We don't always have his ideas, you right. know, which is kind of the traditional Oedipal struggle. Yeah. Uh, but we do get a lot from our parents in the sexual arena. And yet we were talking about my dad a little earlier. He actually, when I was about 18, uh, birth control became legal. At oh. universities in America, this is hard to believe it became available if you were 18. Mm -hmm. And he actually asked me one day when we were working out in the garden together, uh, was I going to get birth control? Did I need any help? And uh, really listened to me talk about it. I was shocked when he brought this up. My mother was a strong Catholic and opposed oh. to this. And uh, I thought, wow. 
you know, this is a conversation. I had to, I had to kind of step back and think, how am I going to respond to this? And then I yeah. thought, I'll just sit, try to say what I'm thinking and feeling. So I said, you know, I'm, I'm young and I'm at the University of Wisconsin. I think this is a good idea. I'm glad you're bringing this up. <laughs> yeah. You know, kind of responded that way, but I still remember my surprise, uh, with that conversation. Then a couple of years later, um, I developed a, a friendship with a woman architecture student at Wisconsin, and uh, she actually was a, a student of Frank Lloyd Wright. And um, she developed a crush on me and wrote me a 22-page letter over oh the summer goodness. to my parents' house. And my dad oh. thought it was a document from the University of Wisconsin. He opened it up, and he found the 22-page letter. Uh, a love letter to me, really. Uh, and uh, he again, uh, bravely for a parent, I now know because I've been a parent, he brought it up and he brought up being gay. You know, he referred to it. Uh, the word gay didn't really exist at that time, believe it or not, wasn't a common usage. But he said, you know, this young woman is falling in love with you. Yeah. And uh, it's very important that you address her feelings, whether you have same feelings or different ones. He said, I mistakenly opened this letter, mm -hmm. but I, I have to tell you this. And these are important feelings. People feel very strongly about these things. And again, I think that openness and willingness to talk with me about sexual matters helped me really move away from a large part of my cultural background, which was traditional Catholic, and to really think about things very differently. Hmm. And uh, so what you're saying, the opportunity to have a conversation where you hear a different idea, and you might be shocked about a sexual matter, right? really offers an opportunity to think and live differently. Yeah, absolutely. As you were telling that story, what came to mind is that I had such a different experience that, so I went to an all girls private school and that was fantastic in foundation in terms of me believing in female empowerment. What it didn't leave me with was figuring out how to interact with males that either liked me or I liked them. Usually it was they liked me. I wasn't that interested in boys at that time. But I remember the way I dealt with it, looking back, was actually very negative in the sense that I would joke around with my friends and we'd be like, oh my God, that boy's stalking you again, which obviously like they weren't stalking me. They were just interested, but I didn't have like a framework in how to process it. And it made me very afraid. And I think if I had had more of a mentor to be able to walk me through and say something like, well, they just have very strong feelings for you and you need to deal with it. You need to not run away, which is something I see still now with a lot of my female clients. Well, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to pretend like they don't exist. And I think not having the skills or the tools to be able to navigate that affects our ability to build relationships. I couldn't agree more with that, uh, Jen, because I, I think often one of the dangers of, I think, all-girls schools is that boys can be seen as the other. Um, we have a lot of all-girls schools in San Francisco. We see a lot of, of young women yeah. who are in those schools. Mm -hmm. And I, I think they are afraid of boys. They make boys the other. They do exactly what you describe your friends doing. Yeah. And it really divides boys and girls instead of 
encouraging them to have conversations really at early ages, at least about liking each other and, you know, and seen in a negative way as stalking right. instead of that they're trying to develop friendships with you. And uh, because there's a lot of girls' schools, there's a lot of all-boys schools in San Francisco. Yeah. And we work with the little boys, and they're having a lot of trouble, yes. you know, even reaching out to little girls in this area. So uh, more has to be done, really, with those conversations for children. And I think exactly, you hit the nail on the head there, is that we have to start earlier. I think that's so crucial, is that we start these conversations young, because sexuality occurs pretty much as soon as we're born. We're already gendering boys and girls and what girls can do and what boys can do. And all of that, if not questioned, if not examined, maybe it's a better word, it builds into these beliefs that we have that drive the choices that we make. But if we don't recognize they're there, it's harder to work with them. And it really brings up how do we have conversations? You know, I mentioned really my father bravely coming forward with these topics, but I, I think we have to encourage children to talk together. Mm -hmm. And uh, as adults, I think we have to feel free to talk to kids about sex. Mm -hmm. And there's all the fear today, I think, that if you talk with children about sex, you'll be labeled a pedophile. And right. you know, so there's a lot of negative feeling about this. But how do you bring up sexual matters with children and have it be an important part of life and an important part of conversations? Um, I think one thing you can do is discuss matters that are in the news mm -hmm. that are coming up and and encourage the child to have an opinion, express their opinion, and ask questions, and then tell them, you know, in simple words or words that they understand. They don't have to be simple, but what you're thinking and feeling about these sexual matters. I think so. I think another area that you can start young with is teaching people to respect other people's boundaries. I think one of the things that comes up around the holidays in particular is, you know, are kids forced to give hugs to grandparents? You know, obviously you want to show affection if you feel affectionate towards them, but you don't want to teach them to overstep their boundaries or ignore their own bodily boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one way that you can start very young or you can talk to kids about, okay, I know you really want to give Jimmy a hug, but maybe Jimmy doesn't want a hug. Do you guys maybe want a high five? And I think that starts at a very young age, getting kids to think about how what you do impacts others. And it gives you an opportunity to deal with the frustration of maybe you want to share something with somebody and they don't want it back. Right. And the words you're saying actually ring true. I have a my first little grandson, and uh, he is already having a little bit of stranger anxiety. So I visit mm. him quite often. Uh, but, uh, you know, I am perceived, I think, by him as a stranger some of the time. And he's not as, as physically giving as he can be other times when I've been there a long time with him for weeks or, you know, days. Uh, but yeah. I think how do I handle that? And what you were saying 
the idea of a high five, or maybe we sit on the floor and we roll balls together. You right. know, I rolled a ball to him. He's not exactly rolling back yet. <laughs> yeah. But there are different ways you can connect, you know, and respect the boundary of children. And children can respect each other's boundaries. Mm-hmm. And uh, body boundaries are very important in establishing sexuality mm-hmm. in young children. You know, this is my body, this is your body. Those are basic differences. And, of course, we're very aware of different genitalia based on sexes. But even this is my body, this is your body is a basic differential and starts us out really moving in that direction of developing our sexuality. So I think you're right. Boundaries are very, very important in establishing sexuality. I think I bring that up. Maybe it came kind of out of left field, but I bring that up because I think about a lot of the clients that I work with, and regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of identity, pretty much in some form, we are talking about something related to sex and sexuality, and often it has to do with boundaries. And it often goes back to, well, when I was a kid, this happened, and I didn't feel I could do anything, or I didn't know how to handle this situation, so it just happened. And I mean, that's really distilling things (laughs) down very simplistically. Mm -hmm. But I think it speaks to the fact that we're talking about relationships, which have to do with your sex and sexuality. We're talking about love. We're talking about some more challenging situations, situations where people are victims of rape, victims of domestic violence, and all of these things revolve around a sexual identity. I agree with you. I think sex plays a very big role. You know, you were ta- you're talking about sexual identity, which is something that we establish through our lifetimes and can change, and it's yeah. really our collection of ideas and concepts and feelings about who we are sexually. And as I said, that can change dramatically. And sexual identity doesn't only apply to sexual orientation, right? but applies to our levels of desire, mm-hmm. you know, our feelings about our body, our self-esteem, you know, our patterns of orgasm and arousal. All of those things are part of our sexual identity. Um, this is a huge part of the work you and I do in yeah. therapy with others because we're really often talking about sexual matters and it can be, I feel uncomfortable with my body, you know, mm-hmm. I'm uneasy about, uh, you know, arousal or sexuality, all of those things. Yeah. But uh, a big part of our work, and I think this is another reason we decided to work on this podcast together, is we've both seen that our patients have a lot of struggles really talking about sexual matters. Yeah. You know, it's very difficult in today's world to talk about it. It really is. We're better off, I think, at using sexual words, uh, you know, directly. But to talk about sexual feelings, to talk about sexual hurts and our identity is really hard. I think to even recognize some of those things, you know, things like desire. Sometimes people don't even want to acknowledge those things, particularly in girls and women. And so I think being able to have conversations, one thing I see is that there are more conversations among kind of peer group, but there isn't a lot of cross-generational conversations. And as we talked about earlier, you know, 
I didn't have that, and I can imagine how different things could have been, but I learned from that experience the importance of being able to be that voice for somebody and being able to help other people find those people in their lives. You know, you didn't experience that directly, Jen, but you are amazing, you know, in your work and talking about your patients. So you're able to be that person really who has those conversations. And I, I think that's important to really have that. And in my struggle, I was lucky enough to have a father who was open sexually uh, with me, maybe not with everybody in my family, but with me. But I too struggled with a mother who was trying to close off really that openness. And yeah. so I too want to have different relationships with others about it yeah. and be more open sexually in discussion. Um, and that uh, is a lot of people, I think, looking for that pathway. And that brings up a good point, actually, is one of the big shifts that I've seen is that I see a lot more parents who aren't coming in saying, oh, I don't want to talk about sex. I see more parents saying, well, my child's still young, but I think this is important, but I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this at all. And I'm scared that I'm going to mess up or I'm going to ruin their lives. And I think that is a more common sentiment in among the clients that I see, although I very much still see many clients who it's the child that has these questions and the parents are like, I don't want to talk about that. That's not age appropriate. You know, I don't, you know, let's just not talk about it at all. Mm -hmm. And now with Google, I mean, I had a kid who he was getting bullied. He was being called gay and or no, he was being called the derogatory word for gay. And he asked his dad, well, what does this mean? What does the word fag mean? And his dad said, well, you know, it means a cigarette or a cigar or something. And the kid was like, okay, well, obviously, you know, I'm not getting what I want from my dad. So he went online and he looked it up. But then it introduced him to a whole other world of things that had his parents just had that conversation, he maybe wouldn't have been exposed to. What do you think he thought of his father after his father responded that it's a, a you know a cigarette butt? <laughs> How do you think the boy regarded his dad after that? He doesn't trust his dad as much. I mean, it's not like the trust is forever broken or anything like that, but he definitely doesn't feel like he can go to his dad and ask questions and get a accurate response mm -hmm. and I think it's small moments like that built up over time that make a big difference yeah. and I worked with dad and we sat down and we sat together and I said well you know I know that your dad said these things and his dad was able to express well I was worried about you kind of getting different ideas and I didn't know you really surprised me with this question and I didn't know how to handle it. And so will you give me a second chance to kind of, you know, sit down with you and have this conversation again? And his son is eight, I want to say. And he was like, sure, dad. <laughs> and so th they sat down and the three of us engaged in this conversation. And the eight-year-old shared, you know, well, I went online and I saw this. And I think that was very productive. You started, really, that conversation. You fostered it between them. Yeah. Uh, but not all kids or parents are with 
a wonderful therapist like you, Jen, but I think parents at home, a way to handle that is really maybe suggest they go online together yeah. and look it up. You know, I think many parents are surprised and shocked. Having been a parent of teenagers, they can ask questions that you've <laughs> never thought about sexually, and you're kind of, uh, you know, at a loss for the whole uh, the whole area, basically. But I think now we can say, well, let's investigate this together. Let's look it up together. I have some old ideas, but let's investigate. And I think that makes you a partner with your child in really looking into these things. That's the key word, partner. It's really a partnership. Because I think sometimes what I see is parents almost want to take over and they want to control the direction of things. And I think then teens close off. They say, well, my parent doesn't really care what I have to say. They don't care about my ideas. They're not listening to me. You know, the stereotypic kind of my parents aren't listening. They don't care. They don't respect me. And I don't think that's where parents are coming from. I think that parents also get scared. Sex is very taboo in our culture. And you're the one who has brought up before that we don't live in an open culture. We we live in a very restrictive sexual culture. And just for our listeners who may not know what that is, um, I think that surprised me to realize the United States is a sexually uh, more restrictive culture. And uh, the hallmarks of that are our struggles around gays, you know, in this country, how they don't really feel they're part of our culture and how we stigmatize them. That's a big thing, how we treat sexual orientation. Our strong gender roles, we have very strong gender roles. Um, uh, Holland and the Netherlands is an example of a country that's different. So there are examples of other types. And we really struggle, I think, uh, with how we treat our girls and issues around their development. So that's a, a whole, you know, something we'll talk about in more depth. But that whole idea that we're in a sexually restrictive culture makes it hard to talk, harder to talk about these things. Um, and I'm thinking about teenagers who would like to have a second choice with their parents uh, to bring these things up. I think teens can say, you know, Dad, you really kind of buzzed me off when I was eight about this, but I want to hear your ideas about sex. I think, you know, teens should try. They should try to open the conversation, too. Though it's, I think, easier for parents to open it up than it is for kids. I think so. I think... In general, I think it's not an easy conversation for people to have. And I think one of the things that you were drawing attention to in talking about the restrictive culture is that what it leads, leaves us with is these extremes where you have sort of very provocative sexual images. And on the other hand, you have radio silence about the rest of sexuality, the gendering, the, the culture. You don't get to talk about different gender roles or how misogyny plays into certain things. And I think then you just have these extremes and that's much harder to navigate than to be able to have an ongoing dialogue and ongoing development as things come up. And I think one way parents can do this is if you start younger, then you don't have to talk about things that are as explicitly sexual. You can talk about crushes. That happens even in like kindergarten, you know, and 
that's a topic that parents feel more comfortable talking about. So you can talk about that. You can go into a toy store and you can talk about, oh, look, the boy toys look this way and the girl toys look this way. What do you think about that? And a lot more parents, at least in this area, in the Bay Area, are having these conversations. They are. And, you know, we hear the results of those, too. Some of those are pretty provocative. You be standing in the toy store and hearing some of these conversations next to you. Yeah. I, I think you bring up a, a big reason, though, why we wanted to do these podcasts, that we feel in this sexually explicit and divided world online and the lack of conversations, there's a big space and that people should be developing skills to talk about sexual matters. And it needs to start early with our little children. And we really need to work to develop this skill. And we hope to role model that across generations, you know, that we're going to talk about this. I learned from you because you're online a lot more than I am, you know, and there's always interesting stuff going on there. And we can share yeah, really our information about sexuality and really inspire conversations in this area. And what's been fantastic for me is to be able to talk to you because we are from different generations. I think people in my generation, sometimes we take for granted a lot of the things that are a lot of the ideas that are around. And it's not like, you know, we've totally moved and we don't have to have these conversations anymore. That's not what I'm saying. But I think certain things like gender equity and what how it's been fought and the experiences. I mean, I remember my mom telling me that she couldn't even put a picture of her children. She worked in a very corporate kind of environment. She was afraid to put pictures of her children in her cubicle because it might have signaled that she cared more about her family than about the business. And I just can't even imagine like having to think about that. But that's just my mom. I mean, it's not that long ago. And I imagine you have very similar experiences. Well, for therapists, there was and still is in some arenas, the idea that therapists should be more of a blank slate and there shouldn't be any children's pictures up or family pictures because it alters the process really for the patient. And uh, I think, though, people are rethinking that idea and really thinking you need to know your therapist has a life. You'd rather have see a little bit of it or have part of it up there. It's not going to overwhelm you, and it's going to really be more fuel for conversation and openness. But uh, you bring up generational differences, and like your mother, I suffered uh, gender inequity. I, you know, you know, I sued the University of California for sex discrimination. So that's a big, big subject. Yeah, you know, and how we lived through that, and um, and what changes were made, positive changes, and there are some, but what work still really has to be done in this whole area of gender equity? And I think we can have more conversations really about that subject. And I think I'm excited because there's so much to talk about. You know, as we talk, I'm like, oh, and this, oh, and that. But I think what's great is that you just take it little by little. And I think for a long time, parents were sold this idea of you have to have the sex talk. And I think that makes it very, very scary because then you feel like you have to prepare. You only have one chance. And if you screw that up, then you've kind of screwed up your kid's life yeah. for the rest of their life. 
And I really think we're stepping back and we're saying, okay, no, for one, that doesn't work very well. Anybody who's dealt with teens know they don't like to be lectured to. Second is it takes off some of the pressure if you just kind of find ways to bring it in into the everyday. You know, you talk about, as we said, boundaries, you talk about crushes, you talk about celebrity crushes, you talk about building relationships, friendships, all of that adds to your ability to talk about sex and sexuality. And it's such an integral part of our identities that if you can frame it differently too and not have it just be like, I need to talk to my kid about sex, but really as a parent, part of what you're doing is helping your child in developing their health and their well-being. And because this is such an integral part of their life, it's up to you to kind of step in and help with that and that you can do that in these little bits and not just like this one big event. Mm -hmm. I, th I think you make a really excellent point for all of us, not just for parents, that in having sexual conversations, they don't have to be one big talk. They can be casual. They can be about little things. Um, they can be based on how the people, the two or three individuals in the conversation can manage it. Yeah. Really. And, you know, I was also thinking about those parents who want to have a powerful role in their kids' sexual identity. It's really in these small ways, through conversations, encouraging your child to develop their own sexual identity. The parents have a powerful role. Yeah. That's the role that rather than setting up rules that you're going to have a child really moving in opposition to. Yeah. And uh, that's the way, I think, to connect really with others about sexuality or through these small conversations. So with that in mind, I think, Jim, we're going to end uh, this discussion, but really open it up for others and for everyone else to really have more of these conversations. Yeah. So I hope, I hope this gave everybody a little bit of an introduction to who we are, how we came to be here, and we look forward to you joining us. Come on. That's what I said.